0: The publisher of Marvel came up to me and he said, I know you're sitting at the back, you're an editorial consultant, and all I can see is you frowning. And I remember very clearly, I said, well, Bill, you're supposed to be the house of ideas. And every time you get a good one, you say no to it.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited to share today's guest with you. His story and journey is absolutely out of this world incredible. Paul Jenkins has been creating, writing, and building franchises for over 25 years in the graphic novel, film, and video game industries. Over the last two decades, Paul has been instrumental in the creation and implementation of literally hundreds of world-renowned recognizable entertainment icons. From his employment with the creators of the Ninja Turtles to his preeminent status as an IP creator, Paul has provided entertainment to the world through hundreds of print publications, films, video games, and new media. With six platinum-selling video games, a number one MTV music video and Eisner Award, five Wizard Fan Awards and multiple best-selling graphic novels. Paul Jenkins is synonymous with success. He has enjoyed recognition on the New York Times bestseller list and has been nominated for two BAFTA awards. He's also been the recipient of a government-sponsored PRISM Award for his contributions in storytelling and characterization. Paul, welcome to the show. Dr. Richard, how are you? I am outstanding. I have been excited for this for a while, and I'm really grateful that you came on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So there's so many different ways where we could go in a, and when we start talking and people hear some of the brands and entities you've been behind, they're going to be amazed. But what's more remarkable is your story and your journey. And you know, listening to the show, I often like to go there with my guests to find out about their beginnings and how that influences who they are and why they do, it, that, why they do what they do. So take us back to your early days. I know that uh, this is almost like a comic book origin story in and of itself. So let's talk about Paul Jenkins when he was young and what life was like for you back then.
0: I was raised in the south of England. My family are Welsh by descent on my father's side. And I, I don't remember much about my parents being married. I just know that my my family are quite difficult. Uh, they, they're they a bit of a challenge. Um, on one side, on my mum's side, I suppose the best description of us would be uh, we're a bunch of pykes. And if anyone has ever seen any of the films that have pykes in them, like Snatch, then you will understand that pykes are sort of like gypsies. Um, my mum contends there's Romy blood on, our side, on her side. My dad, on the other hand, is from a family of Welsh coal miners, and they all just died of black lung when they were 35. Uh, so when I was a little kid, they were always at each other's throats. They obviously weren't wanting to be married. Um, but my mum is a very, very unique, interesting, eccentric person. I was five years old and my dad just left. He was off. And when that happened, uh, we went to live on a farm with a bunch of gypsies. Uh, we grew up with we we're the poorest children I've ever met. Uh, we had no money. We couldn't eat. We would pick what we ate, which was actually kind of fine. So I grew up in that strange twilight zone when, where we had a lot of deprivation, but uh, we also had a pretty amazing person as our parent, my mum, And so she would always make the best of it. If we didn't have any money for electricity and we were, uh, you know, we were in the dark, then she would light candles and make it an adventure. She did her best to keep us all together. And I think growing up with a bunch of gypsy kids, um, what happened was that I lived in two worlds. I lived in the daytime. I would go to school with a lot of very affluent farmer's children. And at night, I would come home and play with the very gypsy children that those kids could not stand. So a lot of my friends were gypsy kids and I ended up growing up just like them. You know, we, I played with the gypsies. I, I knew some of the gypsy people and um, they sort of took me under their wing. So I, I grew up as a gypsy kid that was hidden in an affluent society. That was quite interesting. And I, I've actually lived that way for most of my life.
1: So when you say a gypsy kid hidden from society, that I get. And, you know, that makes sense that you, you basically have that Part of you kept from some of your peers, and so you probably weren't subject to some of the teasing and the ostracizing that a lot of your friends were. But you say you've kind of lived that way all your life. Tell us what you mean by that.
0: Well, I've, I've lived in two worlds all of my life, and I've always written about it. I love to write... You know, I wrote a novel called Curiosity, and it was about a person that can see the world differently from others. You know, when I wrote The Origin of Wolverine for Marvel, the very first issue is about kid at the bottom of the hill that looks up at the farmhouse with all the blazing lights but he he's allowed to play with the farmer's children but not allowed to kind of socialize with them properly we used to play with the farmer's children for example but we weren't allowed to their birthday parties so there's this kind of contradiction where people know me in america for having been very successful in my writing and in my career in entertainment but up until about this time last year uh, no one actually knew anything about my past. They wouldn't have known until I actually spilled the beans in a a book I was doing called Alters. And I talked a little bit about being homeless as a kid. So the assumption always that, you know, I was was 11 years old when I went away to school and I went to a school full of full fee paying, very wealthy children. Um, But there were four scholarships that were available to poor children. And I was one of them. I I won a scholarship. So I left home when I was 11. I went to this boarding school. I would come home uh, sometimes see my mum, but other times stay with friends. You know, I, I just really didn't live anywhere um, after the age of 11. I just was roaming around, going to different places. It meant that I had very wealthy friends and they had no understanding that I might be one of the poor kids because I was really good at hiding it.
1: It's kind of like, and it's, it's ironic that you wound up doing so much work in the, in the space of ser- superheroes, because this is kind of what I'm hearing, it, you know, that there's some parallels there between some of these superheroes that have these secret identities.
0: Yeah, the one, the one thing that happens a lot is people say, what's your favorite character to write? And I, I really like writing all of them. But I will say that the character that I probably identified most with was Spider-Man, because he was me. I could sort of hide I had a secret identity, I suppose. Uh, that's a public-facing figure that people saw as a brand. But then again, you know, I've never forgotten uh, where I come from and what my family's like. And it drives a lot of my creativity. A lot of things that happen to you when you are deprived of, of everything that you want. You know, when you don't have all the toys and you don't have all, all, all of the money and all that kind of stuff, you adapt as a kid. You don't see it any differently from anyone else. You just say, okay, if I can't have a toy gun, I'll play with a stick. If I can't have a skateboard, I'll find a wheel somewhere and I'll ride down the hill on that wheel. And it's just the same kind of thing. Kids will be kids. I, I, I used to sometimes wish I could have some of the toys that my friends had as a little kid, but they didn't have a farm that they could walk out of their front door and pick an apple and run around and go into the strawberry fields or walk through the barley fields. And I think that was a tremendous influence on what I became as a writer.
1: And that's powerful in and of itself, the the fact that even at a young age, knowing that you didn't have a lot of the things that your peers had, you were still able to find value and find things to be grateful for in your environment, which a lot of people don't have that.
0: Yeah. You know, there's an interesting thing, and I suppose this is something that I've wondered about. You know, my brother and I grew up in the exact same situation. You know, we had the same parents. We had the same difficulties.
1: And and the difficulties that my brother and I went through, the the real
0: difficulties, really blew him up. You know, it made his life very hard. It was very difficult for him to manage at times. Whereas I was a different spirit. I, I found my own way, and I, and I there was actually a specific thing that happened to me as a little kid. My family are very fractured, and, and as brilliant as my mum is, uh, she's certainly a bit eccentric and not the easiest person to be around sometimes. You know, but I, I, I love her more than life. But She's unbelievably eccentric. The the measure of this would be, you know, everyone moans about their parents. And you are not hearing me moaning about my mum, but everyone says, Well, my my mum's nuts, or my dad, you know, they always say that. But if you ask my wife uh about my mum, she will kind of shake her head and say, You have no idea like what Paul's mom is like. She's a very unique person. Now that being said, there it was difficult. I think there were times when we were very cold, times when we were quite hungry times when we wondered why we didn't have two parents. All those things were, were hard. We, we dealt with a little bit of, of physical abuse, not, not on my mum's side, obviously. And so we had we had it a little bit rough. But I remember walking up to a barley field when I was very young. There's a thing called an oast house, which is where they, they, they take the hops for beer and they put them in an oast house and it just dries it naturally. And that's what they used to brew beer with. And so it's very, very pungent, and you walk up there, you walk past the Oast House, it smells like hops, you pick a few hazelnuts and some cherries off of a tree and walk into the middle of this barley field. And I remember, even as a little kid, I used to have perspectives. I used to take a couple of the only you know toys I had were like a couple of toy soldiers and a couple of toy cars, you know. and I would sort of take them up and put them in front of my face and move them in perspective. And I, I went up there one day, and I'm sort of laying there, And it's a summer's day. And I looked at the sky and I just decided, I think I was about seven. And I said, I'm I'm not going to be like them. I'm never going to be like the rest of them. They all seem unhappy and I don't want to be unhappy. So I went really hard into studying. I played every sport that I could and tried to excel. I found a drive within me that I was never taught. And so it's always had me... Write a lot about uh, the difference between like nature and nurture. You know, is it is it someone's nature? Is it the way that they're taught? Is it a combination thereof? I write about that all the time because I'm intrigued by it. And my brother and I were so different.
1: That's so powerful. And that you know, you even at a young age, at the age of seven, were able to make that shift, whereas your brother, unfortunately, never was able to. One of the things that also strikes me is that you know, you went through all of this adversity. You started surrounding yourself with activities and keeping yourself very busy, as you were young growing up, was there a particular, and I'm talking particularly in adolescence, was there a mentor or somebody came around that that really helped you on your journey?
0: Unfortunately, the, I have the unpopular answer. No, there wow. wasn't. And I think there were influential people. And I know that, you know, my mom was doing the best that she could to try to raise my brother and I, and I, I kind of want to explain how incredible she is. She, when my dad disappeared, my mom had no high school diploma, the equivalent thereof. So she decided to get her high school diploma and then graduate, you know, with the A level. So she got her O levels and A levels, which would be the high school graduation. Then she went to college to become a teacher. She put herself through college at the age of 35 when all the other teachers were training, they were all 20. When she finished that, she went off and did her master's and then did it again just because she could. Like she is undeniably brilliant but so i think you can look at my mum's intelligence and her eccentric behaviour and all this kind of life that she had and say that's clearly an influence for me but in some ways not her behaviour okay because my mum is very eccentric she had some difficulties trying to work out how to navigate two unruly little boys and raise them while she was trying to be a teacher and so what happened is she would on occasion get in a little bit of trouble with social services. Um, And there was one particular incident. I I believe my maths teacher uh, was walking down the street late at night and it's probably one o'clock in the morning and he walked past the house that we lived in and we lived with a bunch of students. Like this place was drug central. There were heroin addicts and, you know, all kinds of stuff within, in and out of our house. And mum's doing her best to just kind of navigate this, but she's having to house two children in that environment because she didn't have anywhere else to go and my teacher was invited in for a beer and for whatever reason he decided to come in and he found me at the age of like nine or ten years old with a beer in my hand and there was some trouble right obviously you know we knew I was potentially going to get in trouble with the police a couple of times you know I broke into some cars and did the typical pikey stuff right and I think one of my teachers or a couple of my teachers got together with my mum and found a boarding school and the boarding school is called Christ's Hospital and it was founded in 1553 by Edward VI. He apparently founded it because he wanted to give some poor children a chance for an education. And it has something to do with um, Edward having a body double. And he was very grateful to the kid that was his body double that could potentially be in harm's way. So he wanted that child to have a chance for an education. Um, so I went to Christ's Hospital. At the time I went, there were very few, full, uh, mostly full fee payers and very few scholarships. I won a scholarship. And that, because of my teachers helping me and my mum, allowed me a chance to get away. If, if I hadn't gotten away, I was living in a port town with a lot of drug smuggling. I'm an intelligent person. I may not have seen a different world. And if I hadn't seen a different world again, um, I may have stuck within the, I don't know, but I may have stuck in that world of crime and drugs and stuff like that, I think.
1: It's amazing. And so I wonder, you know, everybody has different factors that influence their resiliency for you. Obviously, a lot of strength came from within, but changing environments was a big deal for you as well. When did you start transitioning it? At what point did you start getting an inkling that you wanted to do the things that the world knows you for having done? the writing and the comics and those things.
0: Yeah, I went away to school and I immediately started sparring with the school teachers because I was smarter than they were, I think. (laughs) That's the (laughs) way I looked at it. Um, I started, I remember being about 14 years old or even younger, actually. And I took up art and technical drawing and drama. You know, I wanted to do those creative things. And that school was very old school. I mean, you are talking old money uh, a lot of the kids were being sent to Oxford and Cambridge and they're going to be lawyers and doctors and bankers and all that kind of stuff. That's what that school was going to train. And I was so different. I I clearly loved drama, especially in acting and music. And, uh, you know, I started rebelling. I remember having an argument with one of my teachers about, uh, I, think, I think it was about Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. The premise being that if you're given an essay or a paper to write and um, you know justify what you're saying and say it the way you thought and i've thought that brutus and cassius were understandably wanting to protect their families in rome and uh, my teacher said that's not going to get you to pass an exam and i said that's my premise though your my job is to is to kind of uh, justify my my thoughts and this is why i'm justifying my thoughts her her contention was you're going to fail your exam if you write that And I began, I remember that as an incident where I went, wait a minute, I'm smarter than you are. The job here was for me to justify and write a good paper. It wasn't for me to write the paper with the content that you chose for me. And so I I really started pushing back, but I was doing drama and that was sort of unpopular there. I was doing art. I was doing all the creative things, playing in a band. And so at a certain point I realized that's, that's not for me. And when I went to college, I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. I studied to be an actor.
1: You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. How did you get into the comic book industry?
0: So I came over to America. I was teaching music and drama to learning disabled children. Um, I heard about this opportunity, and this is very typical of me. This probably the, the, the storm before the calm. Um, I lived in in the south of england again and i was homeless again for a while i didn't have any money didn't have a place to live i was trying to find a place to live um i got a job in a pub found a room that i could lodge in so i was living like that and i was really tired and i got near the end of the the semester and i'd been playing around with with getting money from the government and they they weren't sending the grant through i was supposed to get a grant you know but they weren't sending it through and so I had about 50 pounds left. And I heard about this opportunity to come to America uh, to, 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 to work here for a summer. And so um, I got on a plane and I never went back.
1: That's awesome. So <laughs> your last 50 pounds, which you know, isn't all that much money, and, and you yep. got over here. I got over to America
0: and I started doing that. And you know, after a few months, I met the guys that had the Ninja Turtles. I was, I was playing in a band. I wanted to be a musician. Uh, playing in a band, and um, I met these guys. They had this black and white comic book. Uh, they just sold the rights for a toy and a TV show, and it happened to be the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. At the time, they had an office manager and a guy doing licensing. And I said, "Well, can I come work with you?" They said, "Yeah, we could really use the help because I'd made friends with them." They said, "Yeah, we could use the help." Uh, so I came in, and before you knew it, it just exploded, and it was just it was going crazy. And I was stuck in the middle of it. I was 22 years old.
1: And so at 22 now, you're, you're starting to write on Ninja Turtles. And then talk to us about some of the big watershed moments as your career began to evolve.
0: Well, actually, I wasn't writing then. I was, I was uh, working in production. I was editing and making sure the books got out. And um, a lot of what I was actually doing, um, the, the people in the licensing division, for lack of a better description, had some hedonism issues. They liked to, one, one guy really had a bad drag, drug habit. And, um, you know, you sort of, small town, Northampton, Massachusetts, you don't see it coming. Guy had a bit of a drug habit, wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And I, I was very much trusted by at least one of, if not both of the Ninja Turtle creators. So I ended up kind of doing licensing by default. I worked a lot trying to kind of keep it together and talk to the licensing department. And um, after a time, I went directly into editing, but I edited such luminaries as uh, Alan Moore, who's the guy that created Watchmen, Viva Vendetta. Um, I had Neil Gaiman, who's a very famous author now. I had all the best people in comics, and I was editing and working with them. Uh, and one time I went over to Britain, and I was talking with Alan about how he works. And, and if you know anything about Alan Moore, he's, he's just absolutely brilliant, you know, transcendent sort of writer. Outside of comics, in some ways. Um, he's a magician, you know. And uh, I talked to him and I asked him, How did he do what he did? He explained how he did what he did. And I thought, That's how I've been doing it. So I decided to become a freelance writer. I finished working with the Ninja Turtle people and I'd done some other editorial work. And I went, I, I broke into comics as a writer, the absolute way that you cannot break in. I went to San Diego Comic Con. I met the editor of a book called Hellblazer a um, guy called Lou Stathis. And Hellblazer is a very kind of prestigious book within the industry. Like I think every pro would like to work on Hellblazer. And I asked the guy, I understand you're looking for a new writer. He said, yes, what have you written? And I said, well, I've never actually written anything in my life. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, Lou and Lou Stathis and Karen Berger, the editor-in-chief said, okay, let's give you a shot. And six weeks later, they called me up and said, Well, congratulations, you're the new writer of Hellblazer. Wow. I had no idea what I had done. That's amazing.
1: That is amazing. And so then talk talk us through just a few of the other flagship moments, characters and such.
0: I, I was very lucky to have an artist, Sean Phillips. And Sean is an incredible storyteller, a wonderful person. And I learned from the way that he would draw my scripts. You know, the early ones were overwritten, too much dialogue in, I get it. But I had to learn somehow, and I was lucky to have some guidance from Sean because the way he would hand in the artwork against the script would help me to kind of cut it down. I could really begin to see, hey, trust the artist. Let them convey these things. So I did this for a while, and then I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Jay Lee. Jay and I had talked about making a crossover between Hellblazer, my, my title, and Hellshock, which was his title that he did for Image. Um, but we never could work out what to do, and Jay said, Marvel called me, And they're wondering if I'd be interested in coming to this new thing called Marvel Knights. Uh, And I said, yeah, I'd love to work with Paul. And so how do you feel about doing the Inhumans? Now, I said, yeah, that'd be great, Jay. Who are they? Because I don't know anything about comics. (laughs) I just don't know anything about it. And so they sent me these two five-page stories by Jack Kirby. I read them. I understood it. uh, What could be done with them? And so I wrote I said, don't send me any more. Let me write it this way. And I wrote the Inhuman series for Marvel. Lo and behold, it won them an Eisner Award. And my understanding was they hadn't won one in a long time. They kind of called Jay and I up and said, you can now do anything you want. What do you want to write? And I said, well, you know, I want to do a book called The Century. It's something I pitched to you once before. And you said, no, because it was too smart. (laughs) It was about mental health issues. It was about, uh, you know, a lot of the marvel characters have a disability or disadvantage of some kind so daredevil is blind and the hulk uh, when he gets angry becomes the hulk you know and they all have a problem and mine was a superman like figure who had mental health issues um he who's a disorganized type schizophrenic with agoraphobia and he became his own worst enemy so he fought against himself in this eternal battle and they'd said no to it many many times they'd rejected it plenty of times but they they said all right if you insist we did it the century became a member of the avengers eventually wow so then they said to me okay what do you want to do and i did the hulk and i kind of rebuilt the hulk and i did work on spider-man and really helped kind of rebound spider-man i wrote spider-man for about five or six years and then, and then it kind of culminated in in me being asked to go to one of the editorial conferences and when i was there i found that because because one thing i missed out of the story uh, they were in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They were about to go out of business. And it seems absurd now that Marvel were going out of business, but they were. So they had me come to an editorial conference, and I sat there and I watched everybody be scared for an hour. Um, everybody, every time a good idea came up, they would say no to it. And halfway through the day, the publisher of Marvel came up to me and he said, I, I know you're sitting at the back, you're an editorial consultant, and all I can see is you frowning. And I remember very clearly, I said, well, Bill, you're supposed to be the house of ideas. And every time you get a good one, you say no to it. And, he's, and he, to his credit, the guy's name is Bill Jemmes. Bill said, you know, I agree with you. I've been watching that too. Everyone's afraid of their own shadow. Why do we say no to stuff? And I said, yeah. You know, like, like for example, I don't know anything about the character, but like like Wolverine, you know, he's walked around for 35 years with his head. You know, you can't remember where he came from. He's got amnesia. Well, isn't it about time to say like some part of where he came from? And Bill said, that I was just thinking the same thing. Like, you know, we should do The Origin of Wolverine. Like, absolutely. So we pitched it. They said no, they screamed at us. But then eventually they came around and I ended up writing The Origin of Wolverine for Marvel. It was uh, pretty cool.
1: Very cool. And the fact that there are shades of your own childhood upbringing in The Origins of Wolverine is all the more incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As your career moved on, take us through, you know, you worked at Marvel. I know you did some work at, at DC as well. What are you up to these days?
0: Well, you know, I do a lot of game work. I've written almost every character for the comic industry. I am working on an animation project. Uh, I'm about to start on a film project. You know, in the mid 90s to late 90s, I suppose I can't leave the bastard child of literature well enough alone. So comics used to be it. And then it was uh, video games. Video games were seen as dumb entertainment for dumb children. And I happen to think, that the video game industry itself was looking at its own product as if that were true. And I very much disagreed. I thought that video games could be an art form if they were treated as such. And uh, there were a few of us who really felt like that. Um, Amy Hennig, who's a brilliant person. I worked with her on on a game called Soul Reaver. And Soul Reaver was from the Legacy of Kane series. It was a video game about Gnosticism, about the Ouroboros, you know, the snake that eats its own tail. Uh, we were trying to do this in the mid-90s. Um, I think that we were trying to push boundaries. And, and you know, what happened was I got to, to write a lot of games and really push the concept of storytelling. And at that point, considering that I'd been exposed to a lot of stuff with the Ninja Turtles in terms of television, animation, film, I had studied to be an actor. I studied film. I was writing comic books. I was writing games. And I realized... I'm the one person that actually creates in all media. Most people want to, or they want to try to find a way to do it, but I understand how to create a game from scratch, how to create films from scratch, how to create television series, how to do a comic book, how to write a novel. And I got very interested in a lot of new media recently. I'd never been a big proponent of virtual reality. I I think virtual reality has to live as an experience, but we can take VR assets and use them in augmented reality to augment the world that we live in. So I am sort of seen a little bit as a futurist, certainly the person that understands story across all media. And I work in different media. The things that I'm doing right now, like some of it's games, some of it's cross-media. Um, I'm working on a couple of comic projects. I do, I do just about a little bit of everything.
1: And I, I think you're a very unique person to ask this question too because you've applied storytelling to so many mediums. But many people who listen to this show you know, come to this from a space of entrepreneurship or, or even wanting to be better communicators as parents or significant others. Talk to us about how storytelling can play a role in that.
0: Yeah, I have very specific thoughts on that. People often look at me and say, you, you're a guru, you're a storyteller, you're a, a writer. I could never be such a thing. And I think they're missing a little bit of the point with storytelling. We are, we are all storytellers. All of us are, and we all have the ability to do it. We think it's the kind of thing that we cannot do sometimes. How could I possibly be a storyteller? But the truth is, storytelling is ingrained. It's something that we do with our children. To some extent, telling a little lie or a little white lie is storytelling. The interaction that you have when you converse with someone and you you can see their face, and so you have that kind of facial nuance that gives you keys When you go to the end of your day and you fall asleep, you dream, you fall asleep to the story of your day. And so what I feel that I'm doing is that there was often a question, if you're a creative person, are you writing for yourself or are you writing for your audience? And I learned to say that I really think we write for our audience, but we're writing about ourselves. When we write about ourselves, we're just simply describing to other people things that they already know. We all know how it feels to be disappointed. We'll know how it feels to be happy. We know how it feels to be lost in love. We've all been through these kind of things. And so when we devour entertainment, it's simply a reminder of some of the things that are standards for human beings, some of the things that we go through. The question then is as a writer, am I going to be an evangelist? Am I going to be a preacher? Am I going to say, hey, kids, stay in school and eat spinach and be good to each other? And I don't want to be. I want my characters to live. In the way that they live. And as a result, any message that comes from them comes because it's just great entertainment, not because I felt like I had something to say. Now, a good example of that would be a project that I worked on in the last couple of years called Alters. And Alters took people in society that dealt with a disadvantage of some kind. The main character was, was trans, you know, she was transgender and she was dealing with transitioning. And while this happened, she gets the superpower. And she realizes, I can't transition right now. I can't do this. I can't like, explain everything to my family. But she can be who she really is when she dresses up as her super alter ego. In other words, she can only be who she is when she's not who she really is. Mm. And we had uh, stories about homeless characters. We had superhero characters that all had a disadvantage and a hyper advantage. But the one thing that was very interesting to me was I got probably the most profound feedback of my career in terms of people's happiness and gratitude for a transgender character, because a lot of trans people reached out to me and said, "You know, for middle-aged heterosexual white guy, you did all right." The one thing that I'm most proud of in in all of that was that our team, on our team who made the book, because you got a writer, you got um, you know artist, you got colorist, you got letterer. I was the token middle-aged heterosexual white guy. In fact, I was the only guy. And that was by design. Our colorist was transgender. Um, our artist uh, as a woman, Leila Lays from, from Italy. Um, she's French, uh, but she lives in Italy. And our letterer is a woman. So, so the, when we talked about representation, diversity, and people who are dealing with disadvantage in society, the creators of our book were representative. And that, to me, that's the kind of thing that makes me proud. I don't want to be a preacher in my stories but I do want my stories to affect people the way that they did with Altus.
1: I love that, and, and no doubt that they do. Paul, we, I, I could talk to you all day about your characters, your stories, but we are at time. I, as you know, I ask everybody who comes on this show to share their biggest helping, and that is, what is the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing us talk today?
0: It's kind of a work thing. I think it, it means something. In my... Lecturing at colleges, um, there's often a maxim that people talk about: "Say writers write." The concept being, if you're a writer, just go out and do it, go get writing, and that will make you a writer. And I cry foul on that; I don't believe it. I think writers finish things. The biggest thing for me is that I was I was recently on a panel, and it was veterans of the industry, and we sat in front of a bunch in front of a bunch of young people, and the question was: "You're talented. You're talented. You, you guys have talent. How do you realise your talent?" And every single one of the five of us who had had at least 20 to 25 years in our respective creative industries, we all said the same thing. So that is a self-evident truth. If I could say anything to anybody, it was that talent does not exist. It is simply potential. And if you add hard work to it and a form of social maturity, that's when you
1: have talent. I love it. So well said. Paul, where can people find out about you?
0: They can find me on Facebook and say hi, uh, certainly. Uh, They can follow me on Twitter at MyPaulJenkins. Otherwise, uh, they can simply see the work that I do and hopefully uh, join in.
1: I love it. Fantastic. Paul, this was so cool. I'm so grateful you came on the show today. Thanks so much for being here with us. Dr. Richard, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I also want to thank each and every one of you who tuned into this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.